Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Tonight, I will be reading Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself, for Lucy had her work cut out for her. The doors would be taken off their hinges. Rumpelmayer's men were coming. And then, thought Clarissa Dalloway, what a morning, fresh as if issued to children on a beach. What a lark, 
what a plunge. For so had it always seemed to her, when, with a little squeak of the hinges, which she could hear now, she had burst open the French windows and plunged at Burton into the open air. How fresh, how calm, stiller than this, of course. The air was in the early morning, like the flap of a wave, the kiss of a wave, chill and sharp, and yet, for a girl of eighteen as she then was, solemn, feeling as she did, standing there at the open window, that something awful was about to happen, looking at the flowers, at the trees with the smoke winding off them, and the rooks rising, falling, standing and looking until Peter Walsh said, musing among the vegetables, was that it? I prefer men to cauliflowers, was that it? He must have said it at breakfast one morning, when she had gone out on the terrace. Peter Walsh. He would be back from India one of these days, June or July, she forgot which, for his letters were awfully dull. It was his sayings one remembered, his eyes, his pocket knife, his smile, his grumpiness, and, when millions of things had utterly vanished, how strange it was. A few sayings like this about cabbages. She stiffened a little on the curb, waiting for Dirtnell's van to pass. A charming woman, Scrope Purvis, thought her, knowing her as one does know people who live next door to one in Westminster. A touch of a bird about her, of the jay, blue-green, light, vivacious, though she was over fifty, and grown very white since her illness. There she perched, never seeing him, waiting to cross, very upright. For having lived in Westminster, how many years now? Over twenty. One feels even in the midst of the traffic, or waking at night. Clarissa was positive. A particular hush, or solemnity. An indescribable pause. A suspense. But that might be her heart, affected, they said, by influenza. Before Big Ben strikes. There, out it boomed. First a warning, musical, then the hour, irrevocable. The leaden circles dissolved in the air. Such fools we are, she thought, crossing Victoria Street. For heaven only knows why one loves it so, how one sees it so, making it up, building it round one, tumbling it, creating it every moment afresh. But the veriest frumps, the most dejected of miseries sitting on doorsteps, drink their downfall, do the same. Can't be dealt with, she felt positive, by acts of parliament for that very reason. They love life. In people's eyes, in the swing, tramp and trudge, in the bellow and the uproar, the carriages, motor cars, omnibuses, fans, sandwich men shuffling and swinging, brass bands, barrel organs, in the triumph and the jingle, and the strange high singing of some overplane overhead was what she loved. Life, London, this moment of June. For it was the middle of June. The war was over, except for someone like Mrs. Foxcroft at the embassy last night, eating her heart out because that nice boy was killed, and now that old manor house must go to a cousin. Or Lady Bexborough, who opened a bazaar, they said, 
with a telegram in her hand. John, her favourite, killed. But it was over, thank heaven, over. It was June. The king and queen were at the palace. And everywhere, though it was still so early, there was a beating, a stirring of galloping ponies, tapping of cricket bats, lords, Ascot, Ranelagh, and all the rest of it, wrapped in the soft mesh of the grey-blue morning air, which, as the day wore on, would unwind them and set down on their lawns and pitches the bouncing ponies, whose forefeet just struck the ground, and up they sprung. The whirling young men and the laughing girls in their transparent muslins, who even now, after dancing all night, were taking their absurd woolly dogs for a run. And even now, at this hour, discreet old dowagers were shouting out in their motor cars on errands of mystery. And the shopkeepers were fidgeting in their windows with their paste and diamonds, their lovely old sea green brooches in 18th century settings to tempt Americans. But one must economize, not buy things rashly for Elizabeth. And she too, loving it as she did with an absurd and faithful passion, being part of it, since her people were courtiers once in the time of the Georges, she too was going that very night to kindle and illuminate, to give her party. But how strange, on entering the park, the silence, the mist, the hum, the slow-swimming happy ducks, the pouched birds waddling, and who should be coming along with his back against the government buildings, most appropriately, carrying a dispatch box stamped with the royal arms. Who but Hugh Whitbread, her old friend Hugh, the admirable Hugh. Good morning to you, Clarissa, said Hugh, rather extravagantly, for they had known each other as children. Where are you off to? I love walking in London, said Mrs. Dalloway. Really, it's better than walking in the country. They had just come up, unfortunately, to see doctors. Other people came to see pictures, go to the opera, take their daughters out. The Whitbreads came to see doctors. Times without number, Clarissa had visited Evelyn Whitbread in a nursing home. Was Evelyn ill again? Evelyn was a good deal out of sorts, said Hugh, intimating by a kind of pout or swell of his very well-covered, manly, extremely handsome, perfectly upholstered body. He was almost too well-dressed always, but presumably had to be with his little job at court. That his wife had some internal ailment, nothing serious, which as an old friend, Calista Dalloway, would quite understand without requiring him to specify. Ah, yes, she did, of course. What a nuisance. And felt very sisterly and oddly conscious at the same time of her hat. Not the right hat for the early morning, was it? For Hugh always made her feel, as he bustled on, raising his hat rather extravagantly and assuring her that she might be a girl of eighteen, and of course he was coming to her party tonight. Evelyn absolutely insisted. Only a little late he might be after the party at the palace, to which he had to take one of Jim's boys. She always felt a little skimpy beside Hugh. Schoolgirlish but attached to him, partly from having known him always. But she did think him a good sort in his own way, though Richard was nearly driven mad by him. And as for Peter Walsh, he had never to this day forgiven her for liking him. She could remember scene after scene at Burton, 
Peter furious. Hugh, not, of course, his match in any way. But still not a positive imbecile as Peter made out, not a mere barber's block. When his old mother wanted him to give up shooting or to take her to Bath, he did it, without a word. He was really unselfish. And as for saying, as Peter did, that he had no heart, no brain, nothing but the manners and breeding of an English gentleman, that was only her dear Peter at his worst. And he could be intolerable, he could be impossible, but adorable to walk with on a morning like this. June had drawn out every leaf on the trees. The mothers at Pimlico gave suck to their young. Messages were passing from the fleet to the Admiralty. Arlington Street and Piccadilly seemed to chafe the very air in the park and lift its leaves hotly, brilliantly, on waves of that divine vitality which Clarissa loved. To dance, to ride, she had adored all that. For they might be parted for hundreds of years, she and Peter. She never wrote a letter, and his were dry sticks. But suddenly, it would come over her. If he were with me now, what would he say? Some days, some sights bringing him back to her calmly, without the old bitterness, which perhaps was the reward of having cared for people. They came back in the middle of St. James's Park on a fine morning. Indeed, they did. But Peter, however beautiful the day might be, and the trees, and the grass, and the little girl in pink, Peter never saw a thing of all that. He would put on his spectacles, if she told him to. He would look. It was the state of the world that interested him. Wagner, Pope's poetry, people's characters eternally, and the defects of her own soul. How he scolded her. How they argued. She would marry a prime minister and stand at the top of a staircase. The perfect hostess, he called her. She had cried over it in her bedroom. She had the makings of the perfect hostess, he said. So she would still find herself arguing in St. James's Park, still making out that she had been right, and she had to, not to marry him. For in marriage, a little license, a little independence there must be between people living together, day in, day out, in the same house, which Richard gave her, and she him. Where was he this morning, for instance? Some committee, she never asked what. But with Peter, everything had to be shared, everything gone into. And it was intolerable. And when it came to that scene in the little garden by the fountain, she had to break with him, or they would have been destroyed, both of them ruined, she was convinced. Though she had borne about with her for years like an arrow, sticking in her heart the grief, the anguish, and then the horror of the moment when someone told her at a concert that he had married a woman, met on the boat going to India. Never should she forget all that. Cold, heartless, a prude, he called her. Never could she understand how he cared. But those Indian women did presumably silly, pretty, flimsy nincompoops. And she wasted her pity. For he was quite happy, he assured her, perfectly happy, though he had never done a thing that they talked of. His life had been a failure. It made her angry still. She had reached the park gates. She stood for a moment, looking at the omnibuses in Piccadilly. She would not say of anyone in the world now that they were this or that. She felt very young, at the same time, unspeakably aged. 
she sliced like a knife through everything, at the same time was outside looking on. She had a perpetual sense, as she watched the taxi cabs, of being out, out, far out to sea and alone. She always had the feeling that it was very, very dangerous to live even one day. Not that she thought herself clever or much out of the ordinary. How she had got through life on the few twigs of knowledge Fräulein Daniels gave them, she could not think. She knew nothing, no language, no history. She scarcely read a book now, except memoirs in bed. And yet to her, it was absolutely absorbing, all this, the cabs passing. And she would not say of Peter. She would not say of herself. I am this. I am that. Her only gift was knowing people almost by instinct, she thought, walking on. If you put her in a room with someone, up went her back like a cat's, or she purred. Devonshire house, bath house, the house with the china cockatoo. She'd seen them all lit up once, and remembered Sylvia, Fred, Sally Seaton, such hosts of people, and dancing all night, and the wagons plodding past a market, and driving home across a park. She remembered once throwing a shilling into the serpentine. But everyone remembered. What she loved was this, here, now, in front of her, the fat lady in the cab. Did it matter then, she asked herself, walking towards Bond Street. Did it matter that she must inevitably cease completely? All this must go on without her. Did she resent it? Or did it not become consoling to believe that death ended absolutely? But that somehow in the streets of London, on the ebb and flow of things, here, there, she survived, Peter survived, lived in each other, she being part, she was positive, of the trees at home, of the house there, ugly, rambling, all to bits and pieces as it was, part of people she had never met, being laid out like a mist between the people she knew best, who lifted her on their branches, as she had seen the trees lift the mist, but it spread over so far, her life, herself. But what was she dreaming as she looked into Hatcher's shop window? What was she trying to recover? What image of white dawn in the country, as she read in the book spread open, fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages? This late age of the world's experience had bred in them all, all men and women, a well of tears, tears and sorrows, courage and endurance, a perfectly upright and stoical bearing. Think, for example, of the woman she admired most, opening the bazaar. There were Jorick's jaunts and jollities. There were Soapy Sponge and Mrs. Athquist's memoirs and big game shooting in Nigeria, all spread open. Ever so many books were there, but none that seemed exactly right to take to Evelyn Whitbread in her nursing home. Nothing that would serve to amuse her and make that indescribably dried-up little woman look as Clarissa came in, just for a moment cordial, before they settled down for the usual interminable talk of women's ailments. How much she wanted it that people should look pleased as she came in, Clarissa thought, and turned and walked back towards Bond Street, annoyed because it was silly to have other reasons for doing things. Much rather would she have been one of those people like Richard who did things for themselves, whereas, she thought, waiting to cross, Half the time she did things not simply, not for themselves, but to make people think this or that. 
perfect idiocy, she knew. And now the policeman held up his hand, for no one was ever for a second taken in. Oh, if she could have had her life over again, she thought, stepping on the pavement, could have looked even differently. She would have been in the first place, dark like Lady Bexborough, with a skin of crumpled leather and beautiful eyes. She would have been like Lady Bexborough, slow and stately, rather large, interested in politics like a man with a country house, very dignified, very sincere. Instead of which, she had a narrow pea-stick figure, a ridiculous little face, beaked like a bird's. That she held herself well was true, and had nice hands and feet and dressed well, considering that she spent little. But often now this body she wore, she stopped to look at a Dutch picture, this body, with all its capacities, seemed nothing, nothing at all. She had the oddest sense of being herself invisible, unseen, unknown, there being no more marrying, no more having children now, but only this astonishing and rather solemn progress with the rest of them up Bond Street, this being Mrs. Dalloway, not even Clarissa anymore, this being Mrs. Richard Dalloway. Bond Street fascinated her, Bond Street early in the morning in the season, its flags flying, its shops, no splash, no glitter, one roll of tweed in the shop where their father had bought his suits for fifty years, a few pearls, salmon on an ice block. That is all, she said, looking at the fishmongers. That is all, she repeated, pausing for a moment at the window of a glove shop, where, before the war, you could buy almost perfect gloves. And her old Uncle William used to say, a lady is known by her shoes and her gloves. He had turned on his bed one morning in the middle of the war. He had said, I have had enough. Gloves and shoes. She had a passion for gloves. But her own daughter, her Elizabeth, cared not a straw for either of them. Not a straw, she thought, going on up Bond Street to a shop where they kept flowers for her when she gave a party. Elizabeth really cared for her dog most of all. The whole house this morning smelt of tar. Still, better poor Grizzle than Miss Kilman, better distemper and tar and all the rest of it than sitting mewed in a stuffy bedroom with a prayer book. Better anything, she was inclined to say. But it might only be a phase, said Richard, such as all girls go through. It might be falling in love. But why with Miss Kilman? Who had been badly treated, of course. One must make allowances for that. And Richard said she was very able, had a really historical mind. Anyhow, they were inseparable. And Elizabeth, her own daughter, went to communion. And how she dressed, how she treated people who came to lunch, she did not care a bit. It being her experience that their religious ecstasy made people callous, so did causes. Dulled their feelings. For Miss Kilman would do anything for the Russians starved herself for the Austrians, but in private inflicted positive torture. So insensitive was she, dressed in a green Macintosh coat. Year in, year out, she wore that coat. She perspired. She was never in the room five minutes without making you feel her superiority, your inferiority, how poor she was, how rich you were, how she lived in a slum without a cushion or a bed or a rug or whatever it may be. All her soul rusted with that grievance sticking in it. Her dismissal from school during the war. Poor, embittered, unfortunate creature. For it was not her one hated, but the idea of her, 
which undoubtedly had gathered in itself a great deal that was not Miss Kilman, had become one of those spectres with which one battles in the night, one of those spectres who stand astride us and suck up half our lifeblood, dominators and tyrants. For no doubt, with another throw of the dice, had the black been uppermost and not the white, she would have loved Miss Kilman. But not in this world. No. It rasped her, though, to have stirring about in her this brutal monster, to hear twigs cracking and feel hooves planted down in the depths of that leaf-encumbered forest, the soul, never to be content quite, or quite secure. For at any moment the brute would be stirring, this hatred, which especially since her illness, had power to make her feel scraped, hurt in her spine, gave her physical pain, and made all pleasure, and beauty, and friendship, in being well, and being loved, and making her home delightful, rock, quiver, and bend, as if indeed there were a monster grubbing at the roots, as if the whole panoply of content were nothing but self-love, this hatred. Nonsense, nonsense, she cried to herself, pushing through the swing doors of mulberries, the florists. She advanced, light, tall, very upright to be greeted at once by button-faced Miss Pym, whose hands were always bright red as if they'd been stood in cold water with the flowers. There were flowers, delphiniums, sweet peas, bunches of lilac and carnations, masses of carnations. There were roses, there were irises. Ah, yes. So she breathed in the earthy garden sweet smell as she stood talking to Miss Pym, who owed her help and thought her kind, for kind she had been years ago, very kind. But she looked older this year, turning her head from side to side among the irises and roses and nodding tufts of lilac with her eyes half-closed, snuffing in after the street uproar, the delicious scent, the exquisite coolness. And then, opening her eyes, how fresh like frilled linen clean from a laundry laid in wicker trays the roses looked, and dark and prim the red carnations holding their heads up and all the sweet peas spreading in their bowls, tinged violet, snow-white, pale, as if it were the evening and girls in muslin frocks came out to pick sweet peas and roses after the superb summer's day, with its almost blue-back sky, its delphiniums, its carnations, its arm lilies was over. And it was the moment between six and seven when every flower, roses, carnations, irises, lilac, glows, white, Velvet, red, deep orange. Every flower seems to burn by itself, softly, purely in the misty beds. And how she loved the grey white moth spinning in and out over the cherry pie, over the evening primroses. And as she began to go with Miss Pym from jar to jar, choosing nonsense, nonsense, she said to herself, more and more gently, as if this beauty, this scent, this colour, and Miss Pym liking her, trusting her, were a wave which she let flow over her and surmount that hatred, that monster, surmounted all, and lifted her up and up when a pistol shot in the street outside. Dare those motor cars, said Miss Pym, going to the window to look and coming back and smiling apologetically with her hands full of sweet peas, as if those motor cars, those tires of motor cars were all her fault. The violent explosion which made Mrs. Dalloway jump and Miss Pym go to the window and apologise came from a motor car which had drawn to the side of the pavement precisely opposite Mulberry's shop window. 
passers-by who, of course, stopped and stared, had just time to see a face of the very greatest importance against the dove-grey upholstery before a male hand drew the blind and there was nothing to be seen except a square of dove-grey. Yet rumours were at once in circulation from the middle of Bond Street, Oxford Street on one side to Atkins and Scent Shop on the other, passing invisibly, inaudibly like a cloud, swift, veil-like upon hills, falling indeed with something of a cloud's sudden sobriety and stillness upon faces, which a second before had been utterly disorderly. But now mystery had brushed them with her wing. They had heard the voice of authority. The spirit of religion was abroad with her eyes bandaged tight and her lips gaping wide. But nobody knew whose face had been seen. Was it the Prince of Wales's, the Queen's, the Prime Minister's? Whose face was it? Nobody knew. Edgar J. Watkiss, with his roll of lead piping round his arm, said audibly, humorously, of course, the Prime Minister's car. Septimus Warren Smith, who found himself unable to pass, heard him. Septimus Warren Smith, aged about thirty, pale-faced, beak-nosed, wearing brown shoes and a shabby overcoat, with hazel eyes which had that look of apprehension in them which makes complete strangers apprehensive too. The world has raised its whip. Where will it descend? Everything had come to a standstill. The throb of the motor engines sounded like a pulse irregularly drumming through an entire body. The sun became extraordinarily hot because the motor car had stopped outside Mulberry's shop window Old ladies in the tops of omnibuses spread their black parasols. Hair a green, hair a red parasol, opened with a little pop. Mrs. Dalloway, coming to the window with her arms full of sweet peas, looked out with her little pink face, pursed in inquiry. Everyone looked at the motor car. Septimus looked. Boys and bicycles sprang off. Traffic accumulated. And there the motor car stood with drawn blinds, and upon them a curious pattern like a tree. Septimus thought, and this gradual drawing together of everything to one centre before his eyes, as if some horror had come almost to the surface and was about to burst into flames, terrified him. The world wavered and quivered and threatened to burst into flames. It is I who am blocking the way, he thought. Was he not being looked at and pointed at? Was he not waited there, rooted to the pavement for a purpose? But for what purpose? Let us go on, Septimus, said his wife, a little woman with large eyes and a sallow, painted face, an Italian girl. But Lucrezia herself could not help looking at the motor car and the tree pattern on the blinds. Was it the queen in there, the queen going shopping? The chauffeur, who had been opening something, turning something, shutting something, got onto the box. Come on, said Lucrezia. But her husband, for they had been married four, five years now, jumped, started, and said, all right, angrily, as if she had interrupted him. People must notice. People must see. People, she thought, looking at the crowd, staring at the motor car, the English people, with their children, and their horses and their clothes, which she admired in a way. But they were people now. She looked at the crowd. Help, help, she wanted to cry out to butchers' boys and women. Help, only last autumn she and Septimus had stood on the embankment, wrapped in the same cloak, and Septimus reading a paper instead of talking. She had snatched it from him and laughed in the old man's face who saw them. But failure one conceals. She must take him away into some park. 
Now we will cross, she said. She had a right to his arm, though it was without feeling. He would give her, who was so simple, so impulsive, only 24, without friends in England, who had left Italy for his sake, a piece of bone. The motor car with its drawn blinds and an air of inscrutable reserve proceeded towards Piccadilly, still gazed at, still ruffling the faces on both sides of the street, with the same dark breath of veneration, whether for queen, prince or prime minister, nobody knew. The face itself had been seen only once by three people for a few seconds. Even the sex was now in dispute. But there could be no doubt that greatness was seated within. Greatness was passing, hidden, down Bond Street, removed only by a hand's breadth from ordinary people who might now, for the first and last time, be within speaking distance of the majesty of England, of the enduring symbol of the state, which will be known to curious antiquaries, sifting the ruins of time, when London is a grass-grown path, and all those hurrying along the pavement this Wednesday morning are but bones, with a few wedding rings mixed up in their dust, and the gold stoppings of innumerable decayed teeth. The face in the motor car will then be known. It is probably the Queen, thought Mrs. Dalloway, coming out of Mulberry's with her flowers, the Queen, and for a second she wore a look of extreme dignity, standing by the flower shop in the sunlight, while the car passed at a foot's pace with its blinds drawn. The Queen going to some hospital, the Queen opening some bazaar, thought Clarissa. The crush was terrific for the time of day. Lords, Ascot, Hurlingham. What was it, she wondered, for the street was blocked. The British middle classes sitting sideways in the top of omnibuses with parcels and umbrellas. Yes, even furs on a day like this were, she thought, more ridiculous, more unlike anything there has ever been than one could conceive. And the Queen herself held up, the Queen herself unable to pass. Clarissa was suspended on one side of Brook Street, Sir John Buckhurst, the old judge on the other, with the car between them. Sir John had laid down the law for years and like a well-dressed woman. When the chauffeur, leaning ever so slightly, said or showed something to the policeman, who saluted and raised his arm and jerked his head and moved the omnibus to the side, and the car passed through, slowly and very silently, it took its way. Clarissa guessed. Clarissa knew, of course, she had seen something white, magical, circular in the footman's hand, a disc inscribed with a name, the Queen's, the Prince of Wales, the Prime Minister's which, by force of its own luster, burnt its way through. Clarissa saw the car diminishing, disappearing, to blaze among candelabras, glittering stars, breasts stiff with oak leaves, Hugh Whitbread and all his colleagues, the gentlemen of England, that night in Buckingham Palace, and Clarissa too gave a party. She stiffened a little, so she would stand at the top of her stairs. The car had gone, but it had left a slight ripple which flowed through glove shops and hat shops and tailor shops on both sides of Bond Street. For thirty seconds all heads were inclined the same way to the window, choosing a pair of gloves, should they be to the elbow or above it, lemon or pale grey. Ladies stopped. When the sentence was finished, something had happened. Something so trifling in single instances that no mathematical instrument, though capable of transmitting shocks in China, could register the vibration, yet in its fullness rather formidable, and in its common appeal emotional. For in all the hat shops and tailor shops, strangers looked at each other and thought of the dead 
of the flag of the empire. In a public house in a back street, someone insulted the House of Windsor, which led to words, broken bare glasses and a general shindy, which echoed strangely across the way in the ears of girls buying white underlinen, threaded with pure white ribbon for their weddings. For the surface agitation of the passing car as it sunk grazed something very profound. Gliding across Piccadilly, the car turned down St. James's Street. Tall men, men of robust physique, well-dressed men with their tailcoats and their white slips, and their hair raked back, who for reasons difficult to discriminate, were standing in the bow window of Brooks's with their hands behind the tails of their coats, looking out, perceived instinctively that greatness was passing, and the pale light of the immortal presence fell upon them as it had fallen upon Clarissa Dalloway. At once they stood even straighter and removed their hands and seemed ready to attend their sovereign if need be to the cannon's mouth as their ancestors had done before them. The white busts and the little tables in the background covered with the copies of the tatler and siphons of soda water seemed to approve, seemed to indicate the flowing corn and the manor houses of England and to return the frail hum of the motor wheels as the walls of a whispering gallery returned a single voice expanded and made sonorous by the might of a whole cathedral. Shawled Moll Pratt with her flowers on the pavement wished the dear boy well, it was the Prince of Wales for certain, and would have tossed the price of a pot of beer, a bunch of roses, into St. James's Street, out of sheer light-heartedness and contempt of poverty, had she not seen the constable's eye upon her, discouraging an old Irish woman's loyalty. The sentries at St. James's saluted, Queen Alexandra's policeman approved. A small crowd, meanwhile, had gathered at the gates of Buckingham Palace. Listlessly, yet confidently, poor people, all of them, they waited, looked at the palace itself with a flag flying, at Victoria, billowing on her mound, admired her sleeves of running water, her geraniums, singled out from the motor cars in the mall, first this one, then that, bestowed emotion, vainly, upon commoners out for a drive, recalled their tribute to keep it unspent while this car passed and that. And all the time, let rumour accumulate in their veins and thrill the nerves in their thighs at the thought of royalty looking at them, the queen bowing, the prince saluting, at the thought of the heavenly life divinely bestowed upon kings, of the equerries and deep curtsies, of the queen's old dollhouses, of Princess Mary married to an Englishman, and the prince, ah, the prince, who took wonderfully, they said, after old King Edward, but was ever so much slimmer. The prince lived at St. James's, that he might come along in the evening to visit his mother. So Sarah Bletchley said with her baby in her arms, tipping her foot up and down as though she were at her own fender in Pimlico, but keeping her eyes on the mall. While Emily Coates ranged over the palace windows and thought of the housemaids, the innumerable housemaids, the bedrooms, the innumerable bedrooms, joined by an elderly gentleman with an Aberdeen terrier, by men without occupation, the crowd increased. Little Mr. Bowley, who had rooms in the Albany and was sealed with wax over the deeper sources of life, but could be unsealed suddenly, inappropriately, sentimentally, by this sort of thing. Poor women waiting to see the Queen go past. Poor women, nice little children, orphans, widows, the war, tut-tut. Actually had tears in his eyes a breeze flaunting ever so warmly down the mall 
through the thin trees, past the bronze heroes, lifted some flag flying in the British breast of Mr. Bowley, and he raised his hat as the car turned into the mall, and held it high as the car approached, and let the poor mothers of Pimlico press close to him, and stood very upright. The car came on. <laughs>